episode three of Beyond the Lectern. I'm Molly Dollinger. And I'm Jason Lodge. And in this episode, we had a chat with Professor Peter Goodyear. Peter is Professor of Education at the University of Sydney. He is also co-director of the Centre for Research on Learning and Innovation. Today, we're going to be discussing teaching as design. Let's begin. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. It's been a great opportunity to have a chat. Pleasure. Um, so let's start. We're talking about design for learning as opposed to learning design, and we'll get to that, no doubt. Uh, so can you give us a sense of how you came to this area of design for learning as being an important part of what we do in higher ed? Mm, okay. Um, well, I'll have to go back quite a way for that, but I'll, I'll keep it short nevertheless. So late 80s, early 90s, I was heavily involved in a master's program using what we would now call, I suppose, e-learning or online uh, learning techniques, involved an awful lot of learning through online discussion. And to work well, we found that the academic staff involved in it were putting in colossal amounts of time to keep discussions moving, keep things on track, so on and so forth. So we were getting good results out of what we were doing, but the risk was we were getting burnout amongst the academic staff. So what became clear to us, I think, was that by having some pre-designed activities, you could actually get students to do a lot of stuff they felt was worthwhile, that was educationally valuable, without academic staff having to be in there in the discussions every few hours to keep things moving. And it kind of grew from that, the sense that when we've got new possibilities educationally that come about because of new tools and technologies and so on, um, actually thinking, can we invest more effort in design time to get the same educational benefits without having to kill ourselves at teaching time or learn time? That, that would be a good thing. So that was kind of the start of it. It's kind of a life-saving strategy. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. <laughs> you say in your article that um, there's sort of this con- misconception that design will necessarily always improve the teaching or the student experience. Um, is that something... Do you think that actually, in fact, that there are common mistakes that learning designers make when first implementing design into their teaching? I think if you think about design as an orderly way of approaching a complex problem, it's likely to have beneficial effects one way or another. But there's no guaranteed effects. And there's a slippery path, a long path, really, between what gets done at design time and what eventuates in terms of student learning experiences, which is why it's always going to be indeterminate or under underdetermined. But I, I think I'd argue in higher education, particularly, the more time that academics spend thinking through in that designly way, the better they're going to get at it. So even if there's not a discernible benefit for the first generation, first cohort of students, something will go on that will pay off eventually. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I guess that's a that's a tricky thing because if you, from the, the design point of view, for a lot of uh, people who come from various different disciplines, yeah. it is a different way of thinking about what they do day to day. So, you know, if they've come from a science background, they have a very scientific way of, of perhaps thinking about what they're doing that doesn't necessarily immediately translate to a design thinking thing. Is that, is that something that you think is, 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 a, is a block here or is it? 
Yeah, I suppose I'm, I'm thinking that um, maybe, maybe it's worth focusing in on a particular approach to, to design and to the analysis of learning environments that makes sense to me, and that's the activity-based or activity-centred approach. So there you're not saying all approaches to design are good, all approaches to design are likely to be equally beneficial to how academics think about stuff. It's making a more specialised claim and saying, if you focus very heavily on what it is your students are going to do, or on finding out what they have been doing, you're more likely to get to better educational results, better educational provision, than if you approach things in, in some other kind of way. So, you know, the classic contrast is with thinking about education in terms of so-called structures of a discipline or the uh, the imperatives of the logic of subject matter within a discipline. If that's your your main way of simplifying, thinking your way through what you're going to lecture about or what you're going to teach, that leads you in one kind of direction. But if, on the other hand, you're thinking about um, what it is students are actually going to do in response to anything I, the teacher, say, design, set up, whatever, I think that's more likely to lead to things like better alignment between intended learning objectives, assessment tasks, activity students engage in, and so on. So um, I, I then wonder whether the, the leap to design is as great as you might say. I think most people have got some understanding of how to approach problems in a systematic kind of way, it then comes down to what aspects of design you particularly see as valuable. We could talk about that a bit if you want. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. So I think that activity focus is, is quite important to me. So if, if your eye is always on what are the students doing, what do we hope they'll do, what do we intend them to do, what after the event did they actually do, you're not going to go far wrong. Um, that's one piece of it. I think there's another piece which is from time to time thinking how do we how do we make a significant improvement to this course or program or assessment task or whatever it might be and then there's I suppose characteristic kinds of design thinking that involve you in not just working on several possible solutions but also using that mode of thinking to really think more deeply about the nature of the problem that you're working on. And, you know, going back to that question you raised earlier um, about the, you know, design doesn't always lead to um, good educational outcomes. One of the things we know from research on how teachers design is they too often leap to a solution without considering other candidate solutions or reframing the problem. So I think that's another aspect of designerly thinking that I would um, like to see encouraged more one way or another. So so you're saying a lot of it is really about taking some of the things that people do as a as an almost intuitive way of thinking and making them more explicit and systematic? Is that is that kind of what you're talking about? Sometimes it's that. Sometimes I think there is virtue in simply making one's tacit knowledge more articulate and therefore more inspectable. Sometimes I think that's part and parcel of working with others. Um, so if you've got a team of teachers or a program team working on something a bit bigger, just the very act of putting things into words, having a conversation, 
having a bit of argument or scrutiny or having to justify what you're doing. So that's, I think, inherently beneficial, even if it doesn't lead to short-term changes or improvements. It just, you know, we become um, better able to interrogate what we're doing and justify what we're doing and think of alternatives to the ways ways of doing things. So I think it is partly about building on intuitive pedagogy, if you like, building on our intuitions that have developed through experiencing teaching, experiencing being taught and so on. And then onto that, I suppose it's a grafting of other, let's say, more structured techniques for analysing complex problems or for comparing the possible advantages, relative advantages of, of one design solution versus another. So I think it, it's a mistake to say we can replace intuitive pedagogy or experiential uh, approaches to teaching with formal methods that come from design. It's much more about a grafting of the two. Yeah, because I guess part of it is that when you're actually in the process of, of delivering what it is that you've, you've designed, that you need to be able to adapt you know, on the basis of the students that you've got in front of you and the kind of context that you're in. That, so that element, is that what you're saying? That's, that's sort of something that we always need to be mindful of, that we're not going to be able to design that out of the equation. I think that's part of it. And even if you're designing for situations where students' activity is unsupervised, and of course a lot of it is unsupervised, mm. where you haven't got a chance to respond on the fly to things, even with those, I think the design work is often drawing upon intuitions uh, experiential knowledge about learning and teaching um, and and without I, I think the argument I'd, I'd want to make is that there is no formal substitute for that mm. you can't as the old school instructional designers used to pretend simply impose a set of formal processes and mechanisms on the edu educational imagination and rely upon that to create a robust system of teaching I think the the kinds of thinking that are part and parcel of design, whether it's for education or architecture, um, it's very much about a blending of the intuitive and the formal or um, systematic. One of the questions I had when reading your article was you mentioned that design is a wicked problem because the outcomes for students are often in competition with one another. Um, I found this sort of an interesting thing because, you know, to a novice like myself, I would imagine that design would amplify all of the outcomes. Um, can, so can you explain a little bit what you meant by that the outcomes are in competition? Yeah, well, if you take an example of, um, you know, we've, with any one class, lesson, textbook, whatever it might be, one teaching episode, learning episode, we might want students to grasp some concept or uh, begin to um, develop a, a capability with some specific skill. So they might be learning how to pipette something in a lab or they might be learning how to use such and such a philosophical construct accurately. Um, but at the same time we want them to be on a path to becoming more autonomous learners. You know, when they leave the university they're going to have to look after and manage any of their own learning, development and so on without the formal structures that, and support we provide. Now there are various ways of thinking of, about that. You can say that the specific learning objective is constrained by 
a broader goal of fostering autonomy. But I think I find it more productive to think about there being a multiplicity of desired outcomes from any one learning episode. Now, if you were to optimise on one of those objectives, you would say, well, OK, let's forget for the moment about the autonomous learning thing and let's teach as effectively as, or as efficiently as possible around this specific goal. Yeah, you could arrange your teaching in that sort of way. Um, and that's the argument that people who are great proponents of direct instruction would come up with because they're, for their own purposes, ignoring the broader goals of education, you might say. So coming back to how I might encourage people to think about the design of lessons or uh, activities for students, I'd be thinking typically we have a nested set of objectives of various kinds, some broad ranging, some uh, more focused, and that optimising around any one of those will make it harder than it ought to be to achieve the other ones, and therefore you're dealing with a necessarily complex problem that doesn't have a kind of mathematically optimizable solution to it. But I think there are other ways that design for learning involves wicked problems, but that's a, a bigger conversation. Another question I had when reading it was that you have a really broad definition of teaching in your article. Um, but in a lot of the other research I've seen, people often differentiate between teaching, facilitating, coaching, all these other words. Do you think that actually helps um, people conceptualize teaching, or do you think that sort of breaking down of different versions of teaching is actually harmful? Oh, I don't know, really. I don't know if this is something I'd go to the stake over. I, I think it's um, I think it's useful to have a simple term that is quite broad-ranging and covers the variety of ways in which we perform educational work. And uh, we get, particularly in higher education, we get tangled up in terminology because, you know, do you call people lecturers? Do you call them faculty? What's a professor? And so on and so forth. So we've kind of disabled ourselves already before we get started because of that nomenclature and the fact that we're fascinated by rank and status and so on. So you know, just finding a, a, a word that you can't object to too much, like teacher, uh, is, is quite a struggle and a triumph in a way. And I'd, I'd rather have that expansive notion of teaching uh, and just say that there are, there's, there's a multiplicity of ways of helping other people learn, and that fundamentally is what teaching is about. Thinking about some of the other things that you've, you've sort of brought up in your work uh, more broadly, uh, so one of the things I think that you've, you've mentioned a couple of different times is that this this notion of design in a higher education context has had trouble getting traction, that you know there's been difficulty in getting people to share you know, pedagogical patterns and things like that, um, you know, that it hasn't had a lot of currency within higher education. Are you talking about the practice side, the, the research side? Is there a mixture of those things? Is it about higher education as a discipline? I mean, where, where's the, the interface there and do you think it's actually getting any better? over time? Are we, you know, are we getting closer to where we might see design as a more systematic thing more broadly? I think, I mean, we, it's sad that we don't have more systematic evidence to answer questions like that uh, from. So we, our, our knowledge of practice within higher education is often anecdotal, out of date. Um, 
reflected back to us in the journalism of higher education in the most peculiar ways and so on. So given you know, what a big industry we are, it's rather surprising that we don't have good mirrors of, of what we're doing. So, so we leave uh, it up to the big four accounting firms to tell us what kind, we're doing. Kind of. And you know, even if you read the journalism in the specialist higher education media, you sometimes wonder you know, what is it they're reporting. Anyway, so... Um, but my own sense is that there is more of an interest in design and designerly activities and design capability, partly because of shifts to using um, the big enterprise technology systems, learning management systems, and so on. But if you couple that with some of the major curriculum reform initiatives that we've seen around in a number of Australian universities and elsewhere. I think there's something about that combination of a technological platform and big educational changes that involve lots of people working together. The two of those kind of necessitate but also in a little way empower design. So, um, you know, whereas before a lot of what people decided to do differently in education then kind of got lost within the privacy of their lectures. Now it becomes more visible as an institutional fact or resource. Plus the complexity that we're dealing with means you have to have more designerly approaches anyway. And I think it's just entering the discourse a bit more that people used to be very happy talking about curriculum design and assessment design. I think you just have a sense of design being a a term that's gaining more currency within educational practice and within you know learning and teaching strategy documents and so on but it's a slow shift i think a lot of teachers uh, of all levels will say that their class is unique or that their context is specific what do you say to those teachers who don't think that some sort of um you know broad learning resource of that would teach them about design would necessarily work in their class well, I think you know most people would think that any of the major issues that we deal with, any complex problems we deal with, have elements to them that are unique and elements to them that have some generality or are recognisable to others in other situations. So often I think this comes down to the meshing of the general and the specific and understanding how uh, tools or... Um, procedures, devices, methods, methodologies or whatever can be customised to work in specific situations and uh, then I think the misunderstandings often come down to a mismatch between how somebody is trying to promote something that they feel might be useful and how somebody is positioning themselves to be receptive to that or otherwise and you know we know those exchanges where it's all meant to be helpful uh, don't always work out according to plan get the timing wrong and somebody will resist something that might otherwise be quite attractive to them and saying oh well my course is different is a very easy way to close down that conversation but I do think there's some um, skill and a lot of local knowledge involved in working out how to take something that's um, meant to be a general purpose tool and apply it to specific local problems, if you like. And just related to that, I think 
actually the, the way that human beings think means that sometimes it's easier to do a kind of specific to specific translation to take a case from physics and apply it in your discipline of history it's sometimes easier to do that than it is to abstract from physics to general principles and then recontextualize those general principles into the local situation of your own history teaching so do you think and i'm thinking back to the 2005 paper that you did that was in the AJET, yeah. um, where you talked about the difference between these levels from, you know, high-level philosophy to, you know, high-level pedagogical strategies down to sort of strategies and tactics. tactics yeah. So is that the kind of thing that you mean is that you can say, for instance, borrow tactics from potentially what other people are doing in completely different disciplines? Or do you think that there's something that we could be potentially borrowing more directly across different disciplines that might actually be more to do with that high-level pedagogical approach, or is that something that's more a much more situated thing that we're dealing with? I think you can say that each of the things in that fourfold hierarchy can be instantiated, so they can be talked about in quite specific ways. So at the, um, the kind of broad educational strategy approach, we could say problem-based learning or apprenticeship learning or whatever it might be and I could describe that in education you could describe it in psychology and somebody from history or physics listening to that would make some sense of it and probably be quite quick at saying yeah I could use some aspect of that problem-based approach and in my work in, in um, teaching physics 101 equally we could be looking at something at the level of tactic you know, maybe it's something around using a jigsaw group yeah and um, I think partly the point I was making earlier was that if a, a history lecturer explains how they've used a jigsaw strategy and they go through that concretely, it's often easier for a physics lecturer to get the point than if they were reading um, an abstract pattern-based description of that. I think it's, it's one of the reasons that that transfer can be rather harder. Or maybe you know, we should just celebrate the the way that we're good at case-based reasoning. I love that you really made it explicit in your in your argument that we can't account for student learning, that, that design has an indirect effect on student learning, but not a necessarily direct effect because the student still, you know, so much of it lies in, in their control and outside of the control of the teacher. But I guess what I was wondering is why not go a step further and why not further involve students in the design itself? Do you think that could be beneficial or do you think there are limitations to that? Well, I think there's a, a kind of easy answer which says students are always involved in the design to some degree. So some things happen between, let's say, designing a task, designing an assessment task, and the students actually doing it. Now, you might say, well, okay, yeah, sure, they're, they're thinking, how do I craft this essay so that it suits me as a student and still fits within the rubric? and and so on, but they're not necessarily doing that in a designerly way. That might be quite a, um, a quick, intuitive, uh, non-reflective process. And maybe there's some argument that says actually engaging students um, in a more conscious and, and reflective process of design for their learning would be a good thing. And then you can think, well, maybe we bring that um, back upstream in the design process and engage students much more in 
the initial design of curriculum, learning spaces, assessment tasks, whatever. And I think there are good reasons to say that would be beneficial, particularly for those broader learning objectives, going back to um, you know, becoming an autonomous lifelong learner. But again, they're going to be taking time away from other things that people, both the students and teachers, value very highly, which is learning how to prepare or learning how to um, use some philosophical construct uh, accurately. So it probably comes down to that balance of efforts and goals and to what extent do you want to organise your curriculum and student experiences around the broader objectives and to what extent do you need to focus around the very specific um, accomplishments and outcomes. So just on that, do you think that traditionally we've had the balance a bit out of whack in that we've focused a lot on content and perhaps, as some people argue, not enough on things like self-regulated learning or helping students to be much more self-directed in the way that they understand their own progress and, and those sorts of things. Do you, do you think the balance has been out there a bit? I think it's very hard to answer that question um, because, I mean, what we'll do is use this data for that. We can We can think about how people talk about these things. We can think about patterns of assessment which really have a powerful effect on what students do over what period of history do you want to run are you comparing are you thinking about you know 20 30 years ago elite systems of education versus mass and so on so i think it it becomes quite difficult to look at that um historically and in a broad ranging way i think what you can come back to more productively is you know for the future what are you what are you looking for um, what kinds of accomplishments and, and how are you going to prioritise things given there's so little time that we have with students there's so little that we do in terms of guiding their work you know, there are so few assessment tasks I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we should be assessing students more than we do but we use so few um, assessment tasks to then speak to a whole range of attributes about them that you know, all of that gets, gets very problematic um, but going back to the way you, you framed the issue, I don't know what content is. I, th I can only really get to grips with what it is that students do, how they work with ideas, how they sharpen skills and so on. And that you know, speaking about content for me is speaking about um, how you put walls around something. Or, you know, I mean, to call it content is to say it's in a receptacle of some kind and what else is it to say so for me it's unreal in a way and what's real is what students do how useful is it really for a teacher to put all this time and effort into designing the course if they're not also speaking to the other teachers of the other courses and really understanding what the prior experiences of the students are and what the the future experiences will be is it, is it sort of just sort of designing in a bubble do you think it needs to be broader than that yeah of course it needs to be broader um and it's outrageous how um disconnected our work often can be and one might argue you know it's, it's outrageous how long we've tolerated a situation in which people work in bubbles in that kind of way and i i can go at this you know a number of different ways. One one is to say, and this goes back to work we were doing with the Learning and Teaching Support Network in the UK 
15 years ago now that when we were looking about strategies that really made a difference in terms of the enhancement of teaching and learning, working at the level of the whole program made a great deal of sense. Very little point working with individual academics. So there's an argument that says the program level, whatever your terminology is, degree course, or maybe the department level, school level, that's, that's a unit worth working with and that's a unit to work with if you're trying to tool people up in terms of design or to try and uh, set up a more designerly culture if you like. So there's probably arguments that say we should be doing that. Um, I think for any individual academic there are some benefits that would flow from being able to think more carefully and clearly about designing for students learning activity irrespective of whether you have time to consult with your colleagues and find out more about what students are doing on other courses that would be a beneficial thing to do but it won't be as beneficial as doing that plus getting that more programmatic sense of um, of what's going on the difficulty that then flows from that is the more flexibility we build in for students the less possible it is to get that sense of you know what a and there is no cohort any longer. There is no group of students with the same shared experience. So all those issues about curriculum coherence and so on become much more problematic. So do you think that we should stick to a cohort or do you think uh, that it's good to diversify and give students the, the most options available? I think it's horses for courses. And I think one of the things we're not terribly good at is putting all the pieces of the puzzle together. We often want simple answers that say yeah, problem-based learning that's better than blah or uh, cohort-based or high flexibility or whatever and you know, usually what works in education is quite a complex assemblage of different pieces that solve different parts of a problem and it's how all that works together to attain certain kinds of valued outcome that matters and in some situations it makes sense to prioritize um, the kind of logistical flexibility for students any time, anywhere, any mode stuff, that's a valuable thing to do but in other situations it makes much more sense to prioritise coherence of uh, experience or the benefits that come from working as part of a small cohort, people getting to know each other, so I think there are cases to be made for each of these things and it's important to avoid making overstrong claims about benefits that apply to one but not others. Oh, so we can't just do a couple of randomised control trials and solve all, <laughs> all the problems all at once? No. <laughs> um, one other thing I wanted to um, bring up that, I, that I'm really interested to hear from you is that um, a lot of your more recent work has been about this idea of epistemic fluency. Can you give us a sense of what, what that actually means and why you think it's important? Sure, and I can connect it to design in a couple of ways if you want, but just mm. to, uh, to focus on it for the, for the moment. So um, it's an idea that goes back to Alan Collins' work in the mid-90s. And um, in that work, it was, it was really Collins and a, a few colleagues thinking about science education and thinking about some ways of structuring... Uh, thinking around different kinds of scientific knowledge creation 
processes. And so this notion of epistemic fluency as characterizing the ability to create knowledge in a variety of ways that are recognized in different academic disciplines. That was kind of the nub of it. And then working with Lena Markowskite, um, I think what we've done is to broaden out the sense of what's entailed in epistemic fluency, partly because we moved out of science education and started looking at how professionals do what they do in their work and how programs of professional education can be organized to help students become uh, epistemically fluent in their professional practice. So in expanding the concept, you know, we, we include things like being able to recognize different ways of knowing, um, acknowledging that there are different forms of knowledge in different discipline areas, that the way knowledge is constructed in history and physics are different, but legitimately different, and so on. Um, so it's, it's partly about recognizing that there are different knowledge games or epistemic games, if you like. Partly it's about the practical side of engagement in that, that it's not enough to recognize that such things exist, that you know, tennis exists or soccer exists. It's much more about playing those games and therefore you need practice of playing them in order to be able to sustain a claim that you have some epistemic fluency. Um, rather than you, you kind of know what it is. And it goes beyond that, I think, that um, it starts to include conceptions of how we combine ways of knowing that are very embodied, intuitive, grounded in um, you know, the organisms that we are, how we combine those ways of knowing with ways of knowing that emerge from the classic academic disciplines. So. How do you do that? How do people do that? Is, is, is part of the concern here, and also, you know, as we started looking more at what's involved in becoming better at um, creating new understandings of situations, we began to realise that people who are good at that, in part, are good at configuring their environment so that they generate those insights more readily. That's partly to do with just getting other people around you who've got complementary skills or um, perceptual capabilities, but it's partly organising your material and digital environment so that it enables you to see ways of making some of those classic knowledge moves and building new understandings. So that's all a bit abstract still, but what it comes down to in the end is that most of our practical activity in the world, particularly anything that we would say is knowledgeable activity, involves the integration of multiple ways of knowing. And that if you don't have that um, ability to blend those different ways of knowing, you're stymied in terms of what you can do. You're kind of bound within, bound up or, or um, imprisoned within some formal knowledge domains. So, so is that where the interface with the design is in that? That aspect of it? So, well, you've got a couple of interfaces really. So, one would be to say, well, if epistemic fluency is a crucial part of a professional capability and we're training lawyers or we're training school teachers, then how do we design opportunities to become more epistemically fluent into curriculum? But the other is to say, actually, you know, when you're doing design work, design for learning, 
you're having to bring together different forms of knowledge and different ways of knowing and therefore design is intrinsically something that draws on epistemic fluency and you know an example would be <coughs> there are um, forms of knowledge that are to do with uh, how a learning management system works and what you can and can't do within Blackboard let's say and there are forms of knowledge that are to do with how students learn how their cognitive processes operate how you might reason about relationships between things you ask them to do and what they might gain in terms of learning outcomes it's a different kind of knowledge and way of knowing but you've got to move smoothly between those two and combine them to solve practical problems around design of online learning let's say given that you know the very real constraints placed not only in the higher education context but in teaching generally in what you just said perhaps instead of putting more pressure on teachers to do more to do better to so on uh, do you think maybe the future has more innovative ideas as far as maybe dynamic teaching teams or the role of technology how how can we bolster and improve teaching without um, without putting more pressure on teachers I think I go at it a slightly different way. I think the educational technology field or educational development, academic development sometimes have this kind of um, improving and persuasive and this isn't quite fair but almost evangelical tenor to them you know that there is a better way of doing things and we should encourage you to adopt that way, way of doing things. I think I'm more interested in um, trying to understand the forces that are shaping the real-world experiences of academics and students and others. So how is the job changing? How are the incentives changing? How are the pressures shaping what goes on? And, and that's why I talk about um, teaching as design as a survival strategy. It's not that I want to encourage people. My, my position on this is not that I want to convince people that they ought to um, spend more of their time doing design work because somehow that will be good for them or it's likely to lead to benefits for their students. Those might be good arguments. For me, it's a much more brutal thing than that. I think the realities of higher education over the last 20 years have been such that unless as an academic you spend more time on design, you are going to burn out. You're going to start to hate what you do. You're going to get swamped. Your research is going to suffer, whatever it might be. So it's it's a much more kind of animal thing than that in a way. Brutal is probably the best best term for it. Now, I think there are other things that can be looked to as um, part of the teaching future. Um, I've always been a fan of team teaching, which you you mentioned. Uh, I think there are so many benefits that flow from that for academics, for students, for the robustness and resilience of what we offer to, to students and so on, that there's a great deal to be said for that as well. Um, but you know, some of that some of that comes from an understanding of how higher education is moving, what the pressures are likely to be that I intensify, but it's also from personal experience and I've I've enjoyed team teaching, I've enjoyed working in those environments um, rather more than ones in which I'm the solo academic. 
All right, so we've gone from brutal to something that's a little bit more positive. That's <laughs> is, is there anything from there that you think has real potential that you're kind of excited about, a direction that we're heading um, in any of the research or practice out there that you think has you know real potential for something great in the future? Oh, I think there's, there's a bunch of things that I find quite encouraging um, in, in a variety of ways. Don't, don't get me wrong on that. But um, amongst those, I think we are seeing signs. We see it, saw it a bit earlier and, and a little bit more in school teaching than in university teaching, but beginning to see it in university teaching as well. That is, people um, spontaneously and voluntarily getting together to share teaching experiences and teaching ideas. So the teach meets that you see in the school sector um, beginning to, to bubble up or equivalents of them. Um, we're seeing, again, more experiments with um, online sharing of teaching experiences and, and so on. So I, I get a sense, for good reasons or bad, I don't know, um, that there is more interest in taking that more collective or collegial stance among some uh, academics towards towards teaching matters. Um, I think looking over a slightly longer time period, I, I do think the way that people have been using technology to underpin some areas of mainstream teaching makes certain aspects of what has been designed more visible, more shareable, um, easier to reflect upon as a teacher and so on. So I think there's, there's a number of things we can, I can look at that, that give me some encouragement there. There might be some things that are more futuristic in terms of teaching technologies and changes and so on. But um, for me at the moment, I'm, I'm primarily focused on the growing complexity of teaching work and of the challenges that are involved in educational work and thinking, when I think about future technologies or future <coughs> ways of organising teaching, I'm thinking at the moment primarily of how do we improve our design tools and approaches to help people deal with those. So it's, a, I suppose, a different way of thinking about exciting futures. That's probably a nice place to end on, though. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for your time, Peter. It's been great to have a chat and maybe we can have another chat at some point down the track. I'd be very happy to do that. Thank you both for coming along. Mm -hmm.